Ahoy, authors! You're listening to the Writership Podcast, a show focused on helping indie authors master self-editing skills. So come aboard and get ready to find the treasure in your manuscript with hosts Leslie Watts and Clark Chamberlain. Welcome to episode 124 of the Writership Podcast. Today, we're talking about your character's internal journey. I'm Leslie Watts, here with certified StoryGrid editor, Rebecca Monterusso. To learn more about the podcast, visit writership.com slash podcast. Jim Kukrell of the Author Marketing Club and Selmore Book Show is doing another big conference, this time in Chicago in May of 2018. It's called the Selmore Books Show Summit, and you can learn more and get a ticket at selmorebooksshow.com slash summit. Join 175 other writers and publishing friends for this interactive two-day conference and networking event in Chicago. Eat, drink, and learn together, and be on your way to building a stronger and more profitable career as an author. Only 175 seats are available, and early bird pricing will run out soon. Visit sellmorebooksshow.com slash summit to grab your ticket. Hi. Welcome, Rebecca. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Rebecca is a certified story grid editor. She's also an analytical, creative, and renaissance soul. She has been to seven different countries, held jobs in multiple industries, all of which has helped her become an effective communicator and passionate learner. Her overall goal is to help writers learn to tell their stories better because she believes stories are the only way to really change the world. So if you want to find out more about Rebecca later, then you can visit her site at RebeccaMontarusso.com. And of course, we'll have that link in the show notes for you. So we have that in common, you know, that belief <laughs> that, that stories will change the world. And it's so, uh, it's so powerful. And I'm really excited to have you here today. Great. I'm I'm really happy to be here. This is my first ever podcast, so. <laughs> oh, very fun. Well, we'll try to make it a positive experience. <laughs> okay, so first time, but did you happen to bring a quote with you? I did. This quote comes from Terry Pratchett, and it is, Stories of imagination tend to upset those without one. Oh, well, <laughs> it upsets the other ones. Yeah. I really like it just because I think this story portrays that very well, imaginative fiction. Yeah, I'm, and I think part of the, you know, imagination, you could read it several different ways, like mm-hmm. with the, we could be talking about um, the, you know, is it fantasy or is it realistic and, and those kinds of things, but also in terms of the character's inner journey. Yeah, absolutely. And the way they change over the course of the story. So I think mm-hmm. that's a great, uh, a great, like, kind of open-ended, thoughtful quote. Yes, and we tend to spend so much of our lives in our heads, which this character does as well, so... It's just an interesting introduction into the story. Yeah. Yeah. So let's turn to the submission. 
Our submission is called The Flight by Scott Adam Gordon. It's a science fiction short story coming in at just over 1,500 words. So thank you so much, Scott Adam Gordon. And this week's submission is narrated by C. Stephen Manley, the author of the Paragons trilogy, the Brace Cordova space opera series, and of course, host of his own Story Shots podcast. You can find out more about him at www.cstephenmanley.net. The Flight by Scott Adam Gordon I'm scared of flying. It's funny how people say that, isn't it? Because they're not really scared of flying. What they're really scared of is what happens if they're not flying. Sometime during their trip, 36,000 feet in the air, headed toward exotic beaches or meandering conferences, as the windows rattle and the cabin shakes, maybe just as they unpack their roll in butter. What they fear isn't flying, it's the ever-present possibility of falling. It's 2.32 p.m. and I'm drinking coffee in an overpriced cafe at Berlin's main station. In 4 hours and 18 minutes, I'll be on my way to China. The coffee is weak and warm, but I'm struggling to drink it all the same. There's a newspaper at my side and the headline says, Donald's wing stirs again. It's contents I haven't dared read. I've always had a fear of falling, that I can't deny. The phobia has been sharpened in the last 13 years, however, following its arrival. The Astral Spectator, Cirrus Magnus, Sir Donald's Wing, whatever you prefer to call it. Above the clouds, suspended over Belarus, Ukraine, and Western Russia, that leviathan swirl of greens and creams, the magnificent mint candy. It has added a new edge to air travel, even if commercial flights don't go high enough to pass through it. Scientists have been inside, poked about in the wing's semi-transparent vapors, concluded that it's not the result of geomagnetic storms or variations in ultraviolet radiation. They've even ruled out global warming as the cause for this one. But bugger if they know precisely what it is or how it got there. Until we learn that, flying in its vicinity will remain, as far as I'm concerned, pissing terrifying. I pay for my coffee and leave the cafe. Shafts of sunlight stride through the station. Young travelers scan the train schedules, the platform board pointing them in this direction or that. A boy is holding a bunch of red balloons. One frees itself and floats upwards. I trace it to the glass roof, see it silhouetted against the blue sky. Today would otherwise be a beautiful day to fly. My train arrives at platform 3 in 20 minutes. I make my way there, passing the station entrance en route. I could walk out, jump in a taxi, and go home. Put all my worries to bed. What would be the consequences? I mean, I'd probably lose my job, but then I shouldn't be in this position anyway. It's not my fault Anthony's lung collapsed. Nobody could have predicted that. Regrettably, I reach the platform and plunk myself onto a steel bench beside a family. I won't go home. I'll board the plane, panicked and grumpy, like the last dozen times. I'll shake like a maracas player on their first gig till we land. If it wasn't for Marie and the kids... One of the children is talking to her parents about the wing, and I've already caught the gist before I can plug my ears. Apparently, its colors are deeper than usual. It looks a bit fiercer. Does it have a score to settle? Will it snatch a passing plane, whip it into a scramble of skin and steel, dish it out at the arse end of space drizzled in a jet-fueled juice? Probably not. My train is here in minutes. I glance between the schedule and my suitcase, wiping sweat off my brow. 
Maybe I feel like I'm coming down with something. You can't fly if you're sick. It's illegal, isn't it? My train is here in seconds. It's taking me to the airport while I will catch a swift flight to Beijing. I'll sleep the entire way, glide past that glistening, exquisite sight that in no way resembles a Chernobyl pond. Land safe and sound. My train is here now, and the doors are opening. I'm at the back of a queue of pushy people waiting to get aboard carriage C. I don't share their sense of urgency. My train is on the move and should roll into the airport right on schedule. I watch it grow smaller from the platform. Marie will understand. If I'm a coward, then so be it. If this is the end for me in aeroplanes, fine. If I've lost my job, let myself and my family down, thrust us into a powerless financial position, and ruin my reputation, I'll get by. But as long as a colossal vortex twirls in the sky, frothing up colors previously exclusive to toilet disinfectants, flying today, I am not. Heading towards the station exit, I find myself smiling. A weight has been lifted. I feel it simultaneously in mind and in body. I'm altogether lighter. Light as a biscuit, truly. I grab my phone to call Marie and there's a gasp. I turn, ride the crowd's startled looks to a woman clutching a baby to her shoulder. She's pale and breathless. Before I learn why, I'm distracted by further commotion. This time I see its cause. A boy, dressed in cap and shorts, is no longer fixed to the ground. He's floating, gleefully, upwards. He's floating. Peter Pan is real, flapping his arms and twisting in the air before my eyes, free and suddenly not alone. Behind him, more little ones start to rise. It's a spontaneous puppet show. Smartphone cameras begin to capture the children as their parents also try to recapture them. Laughter and noise flood the walkways, though it's only dread that's spilling over inside of me. I drop my luggage and make a dash for the nearest shop. Yet I can't. Can't because the earth no longer rules my feet. Adults begin to levitate around me as my shoes peel off the floor. We're rising innocent as bubbles. Hugs and kisses weave between acrobatics as the masses delight in all of the sensations that their dreams and fantasies had forever garrisoned. Then the excitement begins to dissipate as a domino effect of comprehension ripples through the station. Yes, we've been given the gift of flight, but the off switch doesn't seem to have been included. Metallic screams become the soundtrack to panic and deranged movements, the frenzied attempts of those trying to waft themselves back to earth. A chain of shouting twenty-somethings are hanging each to another's limb, stretching thirty feet into the air from a railing. At the root of the tangle, a young woman is pleading, white fingers gripping the barrier, jaw clenched tight enough to shatter her teeth. The line is becoming taut, rising like a drawbridge. Others are swimming in reverse as the invisible and silent mechanism hoists them without prejudice higher. Is this it? Everyone in the building, every person who wasn't an arm's length from a heavy or planted object appears to be airborne. I claw at the emptiness. A man removes his wristwatch, shoes, and belt as if it were his clothes that were magnetized. They fall predictably through the air as the roof comes crawling towards us. I am now so high above the ground that should the situation, whatever it is, terminate, as I had only moments ago so wished it would, the drop would kill me or leave me in a critical and likely unbearably painful state. What was it I had felt on those other worst moments of my life? I meet the glass ceiling and become pinned to it. Outside, a swarm of humans are ascending, spreading across the horizon. Some are together, little feather families, and some are alone, but they're all desperate. Desperate, tragic souls. 
Clouds are rapidly darkening and coagulating before them, warmed by a glow of turquoise from behind. I search for a fixture or fitting to cling to, just to feel safe, if only momentarily, from the voids above and below. A teenage girl vomits and it struggles to eject itself from her upturned, starfish-like body sprawled against the roof. I scream harder than I am physically capable of. My chest is crushed by the intensifying force pulling me against the glass. I'm in good health. I've caused no ills. I'm about to fly into the atmosphere and perish trying to inhale oxygen that isn't there. Are there people in their houses currently stuck to their ceilings and children at school holding hands across the tops of their classrooms? For how long will they be there before the pressure crushes them or will it cease sooner? A man, a father like myself, is reaching for a boy just too far away from him. He tells him not to be scared. The man is smiling, also crying as he says it. Oh, how I love you, Marie, Joe, Sarah, how I love you. I drag my arm from the glass to retrieve the phone in my pocket, lost somewhere along the way. A red balloon bobs alongside me, indifferent to the apocalypse. I take its string between my finger and thumb and shut my eyes as the glass of the roof begins to break. The End Thanks again to Scott Adam Gordon for his submission and to see Stephen Manley for narrating it so well. I wanted to talk about a few of the things that we really appreciated about this. So, Rebecca, what are some of the things that you liked about the story? I think right off the bat, the voice is very strong. I can hear this character. I feel like I know what they're thinking and what they would do, even in other circumstances. And I really appreciated that. Yeah, I liked, I, I could, the, his need for precision in, in thinking about flying and, you know, it's not a fear of flying, let's face it, it's a fear of falling. And, you know, then also essentially what happens once you stop falling. And yes. I can relate to that need for precision in, mm-hmm. in life. <laughs> Absolutely. Wanting everything to be perfect. I also like um, that irony of he's trading one flight for another. So he chooses Mm -hmm. not to get on this plane, but then he ends up flying without any plane at the end of it. So I thought that was kind of funny in a way. Darkly funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And you mentioned earlier when we were talking the imagery in the story where we have Peter Pan, the red balloon, Mm-hmm. And that, the red balloon that comes back at the end, too, because he points it out, he's thinking about it, and then all of a sudden he's right next to it, which I think is really interesting. Right. And we have an open-ended story, which, you know, I mean, we cover a lot of ground in a very short, this is 1,500 words, just just a tiny bit over 1,500 words. So we have a, a big open-ended story with in a you know, confined uh, number of words, which is, it's, it's, I really enjoyed that. I think that's, um, that's hard to do. It's easy Mm -hmm. to write lots and lots and lots of words. um, Oh, yeah. It's hard to be concise. Yeah. And it's something that I think makes me as a reader think, you know, Mm -hmm. what would have happened if he actually got on the train and then got on 
the plane, would he have ended up in the same situation? And where is he going to end up? Is the glass going to break? Is he going to die? What about his family? So it's something that I think stays with you after you read it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For sure. And I also really liked how in once he does start flying, he raises those stakes so much. You're like, oh, this could be so cool. I'd love to fly. People talk about what superpower they'd like. And flying, I think, is really high on that list. But then he says, there is no off switch. And he gets even darker and deeper into that. The drop would kill me if it does happen. And then at the end, you know, we realize that there won't be any oxygen if he ends up in the atmosphere and these people he's watching through the glass flying and floating up and they don't stop and they are going to basically choke to death. So it's just, it's very dark. Yeah. I mean, there's no way it can end well, right? Right. It's like whether you fly or fall. Yeah, both of them well. in this case are bad. And and he does talk about that. It's not the fear of flying, it's that fear of falling. But now he's he's doomed either way. If he mm-hmm. falls, he's going to die. If he continues flying, he's going to die. So open-ended, but very dark. Yes, yeah. <laughs> From the safety of our reading chairs, thank goodness. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> so... If we were to look at this, at, you know, we have a story, but we mm-hmm. could also look at this in terms of, you know, like as a, a scene. And either way, we have, you know, I thought we could take a look at the five commandments of storytelling. We're going to get into in depth into his internal journey, but let's just kind of go through the five commandments of storytelling quickly because they will um, they'll actually inform our discussion about the internal genre. Mm-hmm. So if we were to talk about the inciting incident, right? This is the this is the thing that kicks off a scene or a story, throws the character out of balance or throw the world out of balance. And so as you look at this story before us, what do you see as the inciting incident? Yeah, so for me, it's something that's not necessarily on the page in the same way as the the actions of the character. It's that astral specter, spectator or Donald's wing, whatever you want to call it, as as the character says, that's a, that arrival is what kind of kicks off the events. Yes, because 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 we have a right. Our, our main character is going to get on a train or presumably get on a train. Yeah. That's the plan that yep. takes him to the airport, which is going to, you know, and he's going to have to fly. His plane right. would have to fly by the wing. Yeah. And he's scared of that. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of scary. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's not an unreasonable fear, I would say. No, not at all. Okay, so then we have some, and, and that kind of raises the question, right? Is our character going to, is he going to go through with this? Or mm-hmm. is he going to, you know, will he die? You know, we don't know exactly where the story is going to go at this point. But the question that we're having, you know, could go one of two ways. Is it? Is he going to actually fly? And then... Another possible question is, if he does, will he survive or will something, We, you know, something's yeah. going to happen? I, 
Yeah, and I think it also raises the question of what is this? Is it alien? Is it something just with the atmosphere? And is it really as scary as he thinks it is? Because he's scared of flying because of it, and that raises that question of is he going to go through with this? But is he the only one worried about it? And why is he so worried about it? Yeah, that's that's a great point because we don't have, you know, in a bigger story, you would have other people's positions essentially Mm -hmm. on it so we don't know exactly if our character is if you know we can objectively we can say if something weird is floating in the sky that is worrisome and oh yeah that's totally rational but in this world in the story world we don't know exactly how other people feel about it and so Mm -hmm. it's kind of an open-ended thing Mm-hmm. Um, aspect of it yeah which creates those complications <laughs> right so our character doesn't want to fly and when we have so if we were to talk about progressive complications and what you know like what are the obstacles to the character getting what he wants then then what would you point to Yeah, so obviously he has this job that he doesn't really think he deserves, um, but he needs it. He's the breadwinner for his family, and he does have a wife and kids, Mm -hmm. although the kids aren't really specified more than just the kids. But he needs this. Um, So if he decides not to get on the plane, he could lose his job and thus his livelihood. And I think that's really what he's worried about. And obviously, I think it comes back to the beginning where he says people aren't afraid of flying, they're scared of falling. And he's scared that something to do with this wing will mess up his flight in some way. Yeah, yeah. So he has to weigh essentially his fear of flying and what might happen um, against his need to keep his job and provide a, you know, provide support for his family. And so Mm -hmm. the stakes are pretty clear here in terms of his decision, at least initially. Yeah. Yep. We might not think we care so much about having a nice job and having money but when it comes right down to it you still need that to survive it sounds like his world at least in some way is similar to ours in that sense Mm -hmm. you do have to have a job and earn money and support your family yeah so then when at some point right where the the character is essentially pushed to a moment of choice you know, there's a there's a turning point, and he faces a dilemma. And what would you say that that where are we reaching that moment? So that's where it gets a little bit unclear to me. I think that the paragraph that's talking about the little girl telling her parents about the wing is it really pushes him into having to think about it. He talks about his train being here in minutes, his train being here in seconds, and then the train is, the doors are opening. But Mm -hmm. we never really get that sense of like, this is the moment where he knows he has to decide. Obviously that climax, which comes a little bit later, is that he misses that train and thus his flight and has to deal with those consequences, which show his character. But that turning point to me is what I think should have been more clear. 
Yeah, I, we have that um, that moment, right? The ch- train's getting closer. It's here now. The doors are opening. I'm at the back of the queue. Uh, and I don't share their sense of urgency. So we have a clue, right? Mm-hmm. Then my, let's see, and then my train is on the move and should roll into the airport right on schedule. I watch it grow smaller from the platform. So essentially, we're what we're we're missing essentially is that mm-hmm. moment when he must decide. Yeah, that thing that shifts it from getting more complicated to that edge of complication, where he knows he needs to decide. Now we get the obviously the back of. Or, after the fact that he watches the train grow smaller from the platform, but we don't actually see that active decision. He just says his wife will understand. Yeah. Yeah. Marie will understand. So we see the right. We're coming up to it. And then there's a gap. And then we see the decision he's made. Now this could be a deliberate decision by the writer to kind of leave that off the page. Um, and it sort of does as a you know as a reader it's it brings you up short a little bit it's like oh cuz we even though there's this pressure leading up to his getting on the train i still you know on my first read i sort of expected he would do it you know yeah. he would just step yeah. on and when you know, my train is on the move and should roll into the airport right on schedule i'm assuming he's on board and then we have that little twist that brings us up short and again so that could be intentional or or not but the important thing of course is to is to think about that and make an active choice as a you know as the writer Mm -hmm. to have that effect or not yeah it also makes me wonder as a reader because that next paragraph ends with flying today i am not well what makes today different Mm -hmm. he said he's flown before Mm -hmm. um but why is today so nerve-wracking for him why does he suddenly decide i can lose my job it's okay yeah which makes you wonder like is it that he has the present, the, you know, the clear and present danger, essentially, in his mind of the wing mm-hmm. and its appearance. Or has he not been asked to fly there recently or, you know, yeah. again, that's so that's part of this being a short story, a very yep. short story and, you know, and being somewhat open ended. So if you are going to expand this into a different story you would you know you would go into those things and yeah and I think it's mm -hmm. it's potentially noted right Mm -hmm. when when the child is talking to her parents about the wing its colors are deeper than usual Mm -hmm. so and that could be it and it could be because it is such a short story but I think it needed for me personally just to be a little bit more in your face to say why would this character who obviously by the end shows that he loves his family they're the last thing he thinks about before he could potentially die Mm -hmm. um, what would make him be okay with losing his job and his livelihood of taking care of them because you know this the these colors are deeper than usual how is that any different than normal Mm -hmm. yeah so okay so then after the right he is 
you know, he makes a choice. And then we have essentially the resolution, which is, you know, the consequences that flow from the choice and all of that great um, description Mm-hmm. Of what the imagery, happened. the Peter Pan, I love that. Peter Pan is real. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's so brilliant. And then we have the right. He's floating, so he sees people floating, and then mm-hmm. he starts floating, and it's you know, yeah, you can see the consequences of his choice. Now, who knows? Maybe the train is out. You know, when it surfaces, we'll be floating as well. We, we don't <laughs> yeah. know. But but the point is that he made the choice not to fly, and yet he's flying anyway. And yeah. going to that, you know, that open-ended, we know it's not going to end well, but we don't know exactly how it won't end well with the ceiling or with the glass mm-hmm. um, in the ceiling uh, breaking. So... So now what's really unique about this, I think, is that we have a, a, you know, it's a very internal story. We're not, um, there's not, you know, it's not the Matrix. It's not Star Wars. It's not, you know, like they have uh, strong internal journeys as well. But we don't, there's not a lot happening here in the story. Yeah. Um, you could, you know, boil the action down to a couple of sentences, but, but in terms of what's happening within the character, it's pretty big. Yes. His internal change. Like I said, we spend most of our lives in our heads and that seems to be the case for this character as well. Yeah. And so when we normally talk about you know, stories and the character arc, essentially the, the, the characters, the main characters inner journey and the way they change as a result of the events that happen externally, that it, it can be a kind of fuzzy and vague. Um, Mm -hmm. but, but there's this wonderful scholar who wrote an article back in the 1950s <laughs> about, you know, about this very thing and kind of helping us. It helps us to, um, to use his method of essentially categorizing the types of cha- inner change that characters go through. And so if we're looking at this, it, it's actually, and I should say that Norman Friedman who's the author of the article, Forms of the Plot, um, he kind of helps, he provided some questions and this framework based on, you know, other people's work as well. And Friedman is the main source, I should say, for both Robert McKee's um, internal journey stories and Sean Coyne's internal genre classifications. So, we're kind of we're going old school in a way, but it's also something that's being uh, pulled forward into um, contemporary, you know, the current thinking on story and how it's organized. So we have three types, essentially, of internal journeys. And the first is their their plots of fortune. Uh Sean calls these, Sean Coyne calls them status 
plots. And so we have, this is where the protagonist's honor, status, or reputation are implicated and the where talk about success or failure we talk about respect and shame when we're talking about this kind of this kind of plot then we have plots of character which implicate morality these are your the character's motives purposes goals habits behavior and will we tend to think about it in terms of good and evil or selfishness and altruism and then the third are plots of thought and this is you know also known as the worldview and these are states of mind attitudes reasonings beliefs conceptions knowledge we tend to think about this in terms of naivete and and sophistication or also meaning or meaninglessness um, belief or disillusionment so another way to think about this is right we have the way that the external world impacts the character, they can think about it in terms of success or in terms of their status. They can think about it. It can impact the way that they make decisions, their, you know, sort of moral fiber, essentially. Or we can think about it in terms of if it changes the way they think and feel about the world. So Mr. Friedman was so great in organizing this and he came up with some questions we can ask to kind of think, figure out where you know what kind of story we're trying to tell in terms of the character's internal journey so the first question that we answer is who is the protagonist so rebecca when we're looking at this story and we want to look at the protagonist what would what do we see when we see him? Yeah, so the only character that we are privy to their internal thoughts and their journey is obviously the voice of the story. It's the father, the husband, he's the breadwinner for this family, um, and he is who we're following. Yeah, and he's, in terms of, do we think of him, is he... That um, Friedman uses the terms, right, attractive, uh, and we're not talking about, obviously, physical attraction, <laughs> but but is he a sort of appealing character? Is he, um, do we, do we like him? Is he sympathetic? You know, those kinds of things. What do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, I would say so. To an extent, I feel like maybe that active choice that we're missing on the page would help describe him better because, as we say, actions are character. But I do think that he is somebody that I can picture. You know, he says he's he might be a coward for choosing not to get on this plane. But, you know, that's okay. His wife will understand. Um, and then in the last moments where this glass is potentially cracking and he could run out of oxygen or he could fall to his death, he thinks about his family. Mm -hmm. You know, he thinks about his kids. He wishes he had his phone to call them to say goodbye to them. And that's something I feel like I would do myself. So I relate to that character in that sense. Yeah, and even if we don't feel, like, even if we personally feel okay about flying and, and we're uh, the wing, what is it, Sir Donald's wing, yeah. if it were, uh, 
you know, suspended above our cities, you know, if we, that wouldn't be a challenge to us, certainly we all have things that we're afraid of and that are, you know, kind of personal to us in that, you know, maybe, you know, like, like I know people who are afraid of water and don't want to swim and, mm-hmm. and those kinds of things. And plenty of people go swimming, obviously. And so it's, you know, the things that we're afraid of are very personal. And so again, if even if we don't relate specifically to we're fine with flying, it's actually kind of fun. Um, we can still relate to there is this thing that people do, and we don't want to do it. Yeah, he has fears, he has faults, he's not this perfect character. Mm -hmm. So I can see myself in him because of that. Yeah. Okay, so that's, so we, you know, he's a pretty sympathetic character. Um, And then we want to look then for our second area of inquiry, we kind of want to look, assess the factors, right? The uh, fortune, character, and thought, and see where is he in terms of the, you know, these three factors. So, cause there's a little bit, right. There's a little bit of each in every internal change, right. They're, they all apply to a certain extent. And so what we, what we want to get at is kind of, it's just a little assessment of where he is, you know, in, in this story. So if we look first at his morality or character, like what is his character and how do we respond to it? Yeah, I think once again, that comes back to him thinking of his family. So his character that he's showing us that he is a family man, that even though he is deciding to potentially lose his job, he thinks of his family last. He, and again, I think maybe showing that decision to not get on the plane a little bit more clearly, show his moral dilemma, so to speak, with that might help describe him better but i'd say that's that's where he is he he might be making this decision that he thinks could call himself a coward um but he he's worried about it and he cares about his family and he's thinking about them in the process yeah it's really interesting to me because right he's it's up to the last minute. It's not yeah. like he's at home and he just, you know, he says to Marie, uh, you know what? I just can't do it. I love you guys and I want to provide for you, but uh, I can't fly. You know? Yeah, he definitely takes it to the very last second. He does it in a way that he's not home, so mm-hmm. he can't see her face to face. Um, but he still makes this decision. He still thinks that she will understand. Um, and he still grabs his phone to call her right away. You know, it's not like he's hiding that. Right. Yeah. So pretty good morality. We're going to say pretty positive. Yeah. Um, so then I'm going to jump around a little bit actually. So if we were to talk about his, you know, the the aspect of thought or worldview or how he thinks and feels about things. The question we would ask is, do we think that he's sufficiently aware of the facts of the situation and consequences of his behavior to be held responsible? So essentially, 
does he does he have a pretty accurate view of what's going on or is he being naive about it i i would say that he doesn't really know um because i as a reader don't really know what he is aware of and what he isn't that the wing is that what's causing them to fly um and i don't think that's necessarily clear i don't think it has to be because maybe that is something that's up in the air we don't know maybe it is because he chose not to fly that he's now flying in the end but because i don't know as a reader i can't tell exactly what he knows yeah um we don't yeah and i think again i think you know the the inquiry of this story isn't necessarily like we're not getting into the wing and what i mean we do we find out what it's not yeah right we get a little section about what it's not but we don't know what it is and that's not our area of inquiry that's not the open question like in this story it's more about the you know the character and how yeah, he's responding absolutely. to things and so when we have you know, we don't, right, he's just, and yeah, the other thing is, he's deciding to, to skip the train uh, and the flight based on his fear, apparently, mm-hmm. um, rather than rational thought. And, and I see that he's right, he's, he probably thinks about it more than most people. Um, because there's right, there are other people, there's urgency to get on the train to go mm-hmm. to the planes, right? And he doesn't have that. He's been, no. he's, he's concerned. And so he thinks about it more than others, but he's making the decision based on fear pretty qu- pretty clearly. Yeah, there's that great imagery of him listening, overhearing this little girl or child, I guess, talk to their parents about the colors being deeper. And he's too too late to plug his ears. You know, mm-hmm. I picture him just sitting there with his fingers in his ears, trying not to overhear anything about Sir Donald's wing because he's so scared of it. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's definitely not ra- rational, logical, anything like that. Yeah. So... Okay, so then we get we come to the status essentially or the fortune. Like what is his fortune? Do we fear that it's going to get worse or do we hope it's going to get better? Yeah, I think it's something we absolutely fear is going to get worse. (laughs) You had mentioned we have this short-term anxiety for him. You know, he has to get on this plane. It's something that even if we're not scared of flying, we can relate to being scared of something. Um, But that then turns into the long-term fear once we realize that he is flying, but there's that twist of not being in a plane. So I, I think that's something that's really interesting that's, just very bad for him (laughs) either way we've said he could fly he could fall but both of them are not going to be good for him right and then yeah we have because we have that open-ended ending Mm -hmm. where yeah it's not going to end well I mean (laughs) I could dream up an ending that would be that might but 
it's not likely given the circumstances. Right. <laughs> the simplest solution is probably what's going to happen. But, you know, I can imagine a bunch of people in heavy weights putting balloons down on the floor right. for everyone to land on. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, you could fall into a, you know, a bouncy house and... <laughs> Yeah. Yes, exactly. A net of some sort, something. (laughs) But it's really interesting, isn't it? Like that he might have actually done better on the train. If this is a temporary or localized event, then Mm -hmm. because we don't know what the cause is, then he might have actually done better by going on the train uh, to the airport. And so it's kind of a, oh, you know. Yeah, yep, back to that irony. He's yeah. trading one thing for something that could be worse. Right. We don't know. Okay, so then, so of those three factors, then what we have is, you know, his character is pretty good. Uh, he his uh, his worldview or his level of sophistication, you know, he's making decisions based on his fear. And we don't know how that compares, you know, with other people's understanding or how objective his understanding of Donald's wing is. But um, but he's not probably probably not the most naive and not the most sophisticated person. Mm-hmm. Um, so and then his fortune just not good. Not yeah. good. Short term. <laughs> Short-term anxiety, long-term fear, it's all realized with that. Um, Mm -hmm. I would, like, a really great twist. I mean, it's it's terrible for the character, but but in terms of the reading experience, that's a, it's a a great innovation. Yes. Not what we're expecting. Yep. So then if we look at it, like which of the, our third question is, which of these three factors, the character, the fortune, or the thought undergoes a change from beginning to end. Now, as I mentioned before, like, especially when you have a, you know, a sort of more literary or character driven story, it's, there's going to be an aspect of each one in the story or a little change like he sure changes how he Mm -hmm. thinks about the world after this um in you know just simply because the world changes in a big way but but when we're in order to kind of you know have a deep understanding of our story and like the change that the character undergoes then it helps us to look at which factor is dominant so, um, so when we're looking at this, if we were to say, you know, we talked about the different aspects of them, which do you say, or make an, maybe make an argument for morality being the main factor? Yeah. So if we look at morality from the standpoint of his family, how he decides to give up his job despite the consequences. But at the very end, when he's faced with potentially his death, um, he thinks about them last. He wants to call them. He wants to comfort them. He wants to hear their voices. So he changes. And again, this probably could depend on that active choice being on the page um, to change that understanding. But for me, it was something that he, he was willing to kind of make do and and push forward his wife would understand if he gave up his job but then by the end 
those were the people he wanted to keep most close to him. Yeah. So that seemed to be a little bit of a change, at least at odds with his earlier actions. Right, right. So then if we were to think about this as a plot of thought or, you know, thinking about his worldview, how would we say that he changed in this? To me, I think that's the most interesting imagery wise, because his entire world is flipped upside down. Mm -hmm. He's no longer standing on the ground. He's floating up to the roof of this train station. Um, So the entire worldview is just the opposite of what it was before. He had an understanding of the rules, the laws of physics, and everything is just changed. It's different. He doesn't know what his fate is going to be. Yeah, that truly you can be worried about flying. Like there yeah. is like a fear, yes. of, a fear <laughs> of flight is totally legitimate. Yeah. I mean, you think about it in the news. Yes, you hear these tragic, you know, plane crashes and things like that. But you think of how many flights fly every single day compared to the ones that you hear about that don't. Mm-hmm. And this is something that's so in your face, like you are a fragile human being. If you dropped from a height that high, you would die. If you floated into the atmosphere, there's no oxygen, you would die. So it's something that's very different in terms of like safety. Yeah. So when we're then, yeah. So, I mean, that brings us to the status and his plot of fortune, essentially circumstances Mm -hmm. change drastically. He has no control over it. It's just, you know, what happens? Yeah. And once again, I think it's interesting how we've talked about what would have happened if he did get on that train. Maybe he would have fared better. Mm -hmm. This is all just bad luck, bad luck, bad luck. You know, his fortune is it's very negative. We're scared for him. But we don't know what would have happened had he made different decisions. Right. Right. So I think I would argue that the that status is the biggest, you know, is the biggest change. But I think, you know, again, um, one of the things we talked about is that we project our own sort of, everybody has a kind of internal genre um, in one of these three areas that's a sort of, it's the lens through which we see the world. And so Mm -hmm. as a result, we sometimes project that onto the stories that we're reading and watching. And and so I do tend to see status stories. So I have to be mindful of that in my work. Uh, But that to me, this one is pretty strongly in that category in terms of the change that the that the protagonist experiences. But again, reasonable minds could differ on that. Absolutely. That's what makes internal genres so squishy. (laughs) We all think we live in our heads and we think differently. And once you send off a piece of writing or you produce that movie, the audience is going to take it how they will. It doesn't belong solely to the writer anymore. So I think that's what makes stories so powerful. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Okay, so then our our fourth question is, how does it end, right? And actually, there's, you know, I, I, 
I have negative written down, but it's negative in terms of status. But the way that we've talked about morality and worldview, it would be more positive in a way because in the beginning he's thinking about oh right his family will understand in terms of character but you know like he's very concerned about his family like his family is what he is the end so so rather than his family understanding like he's wanting to reach out to them and so that's a you know, you could argue that that's a positive shift in terms mm-hmm. of morality. And then in worldview, he is certainly more enlightened about, <laughs> yes, you know, what's possible. And he sees the world differently, for better or for worse. I mean, <laughs> mm-hmm. okay, for worse, um, in terms <laughs> of the actual what's objectively happening externally. But but it represents a, a sort of maturation or a movement towards sophistication because he has a, a deeper understanding of things. Mm-hmm. But, of course, in terms of status, things, it's not good, right? He's safe yeah. on the ground in the beginning. In the end, he's up in the air. The ceiling is cracking. He will, If he falls, he will fall to his death. If he continues to float, he will float up where there's no oxygen. So mm-hmm. it's just not going to end well. So then finally, our fifth question is, you know, is essentially, can we, can we kind of, narrow this down to a cause and effect relationship so how does the how does the character change over the course of the story and internally and we were talking about how you know this this notion of how much control do we really have right his choice was to avoid flying but circumstances intervened and he wasn't able to avoid it in the end Mm -hmm. so and i don't want to get you know in terms of this like get stuck on labels of particular um you know the the particular uh i'm I'm stumbling (laughs) over this here but but basically the particular way we describe the specific changes within the you know within each of these areas but i do want to kind of describe them for you know uh, the possibilities for um you know just as as ways to think about it so if we're looking at morality we might see this as a testing plot right and it you know again if the if the if his decision were more active on the page um then that might change it might change the story a bit but a testing plot right is a we have a fairly strong-willed character who is tested you know has a has a choice and so it's possible that you know if we were if we were to decide that this was a morality story then that would be the one that we would kind of go with um 
And in terms of thoughts, it looks like a maturation, right? He's moving from being somewhat naive about what's possible to being enlightened in an unpleasant way. Um, But Mm -hmm. then if we were to look at the status, you know, his change in status, then we would call it, and the terminology isn't... um, I should say, perhaps the the connotation of the words are, would not really jive with what we you know what we truly mean. But we would say um, that this is a pathetic um, plot in terms of the status genre or the you know status plot of plot of fortune because we do have this sympathetic character but things just happen um that are not you know that are deeply unpleasant and he and he's not going to be able to um find his way out of them so yeah. it's very sad mm-hmm. but it's also interesting because he has these decisions he chooses not to to get on the train but everything else that happens to him you know he doesn't have a say in he doesn't have a say in the fact that he's now floating he didn't have a say in getting that job you know it's just something that he kind of ended up with it fell in his lap so i think the status genre definitely suits the story as it's written now yeah yeah i agree um and it's an it's such an interesting inquiry, and you know, again, like the it, how amazing that that this short story could, you know, lead to all sorts of interesting discussion mm-hmm. when it's you know it's a bare fifteen hundred words. So that's yeah. pretty. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Okay, so as you can imagine. Our editorial mission for the week is going to be about checking your protagonist's inner journey. So what I want you to do is like look at your story as a whole and ask, who is your protagonist? And think about, is is your a pra- protagonist a likable person? Is Are they, you know, like when you're looking at the, you know, the three factors, like, is your character um what's what is their moral character essentially how do we respond to it um what is what is his fortune do we think it's going to get worse or do we hope it will get better um and then how does the character think and feel about the world essentially do we think that the character is sufficiently aware of the facts and the situation and the consequences of his behavior to be held responsible and then the next inquiry is which of those three factors does you know ha- creates the biggest change from the beginning to the end of the story and if there's more than one then, you know, which one is bigger and then how do those other factors relate? Um, And then how does it end? Does it represent a positive? um, Does it represent growth or does it represent something that's, you know, growth in terms of thought and morality 
Um, but in terms of status, is it positive or negative also? So, and then kind of, and then boiling it down, can you boil it down to a cause and effect relationship? Now, this is a lot of stuff to think about, and I'll have some useful uh, resources in the show notes to help with this. Um, and the reason I didn't want to get into the all the, you know, kind of the nitty gritty of the individual labels and such is because it would, you know, we, I'd have to go on talking for another hour um, <laughs> about it. But, but the point, but there are lots of, again, I'll have some sheets to help you with this on the website in the show notes. And, um, and this is just to kind of start getting to think about it. Even if all you do is narrow down your character's internal journey to, I think this is in the area of morality and character, or I think this is in the area of thought and worldview or status and fortune, then you will begin to think more clearly and, and be able to show that progression within your story more clearly and through the subtext and make a stronger, you know, more powerful story. So just a reminder that you can go to writership.com slash episodes to find all of the information about the editorial mission, and you can sign up there to have the editorial missions delivered right to your inbox. Jim Kukrell of the Author Marketing Club and Sell More Book Show is doing another big conference, this time in Chicago in May of 2018. It's called the Sell More Books Show Summit, and you can learn more and get a ticket at sellmorebooksshow.com slash summit. Join 175 other writers and publishing friends for this interactive two-day conference and networking event in Chicago. Eat, drink, and learn together and be on your way to building a stronger and more profitable career as an author. Only 175 seats are available and early bird pricing will run out soon. Visit sellmorebooksshow.com slash summit to grab your ticket. Okay, Jim Kukrell and the Author Marketing Club cover hosting and technical support for the show, but our Patreon crew supports our time in and preparation. So we have a new reward. Well, it's not so new now, but we have a great reward at the quartermaster's level, and it's the Writership Podcast Book Club. Each month, we'll choose a book. I'll choose a book from your suggestions, and I'll read it and analyze it the way I would for a story grid diagnostic, and then we'll discuss it in a recorded call. So uh, if you want to find out more about the book club or other ways to support the podcast, you can visit patreon.com slash writership. If you enjoy the show and want to show your support in other ways, you can leave a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher. It's really important because it helps other writers find us. And if you want to have your five pages reviewed, you can visit writership.com slash submissions. My thanks to Rebecca Monteruso for joining me today. That's it for episode 124. We'll see you next time on the Writership Podcast. Ready for Leslie and Clark to help you find the treasure in your manuscript? Submit your pages to writership.org forward slash podcast.